good number of years ago now, when I was an assistant minister at a church a decent way away from this. Uh, one day we, we were burying, uh, not a, a coffin, but burying some ashes. It had been a funeral uh, a week or two earlier, and the family had been trying to decide where to, to bury this little urn. And they'd been debating it. The church was a beautiful church, the Church of England church. Uh, it had a beautiful graveyard out the back, down by a river, uh, and out the front. And the debate had been going on for a reasonable time in the family. Where, where are we going to bury, bury Grandpa? Uh, some said, well, we, he'd like to be by the river. Okay, it's beautiful, uh, the yew tree over It's just a beautiful setting. Others said, well, no, it'd be nice to have it in, in the front graveyard, because then we'll see when we walk past him week by week. And finally, they decided on the front, and we, we, got, we got to the actual the burial. Uh, and Mike, who was one of the church wardens, he, he dug the hole. And he was just waiting sort of respectfully off to the side. Uh, and just as, as the urn was about to be buried, uh, the mum of the family suddenly said, oh, maybe this isn't the right spot. And you can sort of see various family members thinking, oh, no, here we go again. And, and so, well, I just, it's quite close to a train line. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a bit too noisy. And then another family member said, but he, he loved trains. He worked in the rail industry. Yeah, he'd love to see the trains go by in the morning. And someone else said, but, I, but he liked fishing too. He'd, he'd, he'd like to be able to see the river. And then someone else said, well, no, but all his friends pass by on the train every morning. He, he'll love to see them as they go by. And then they turned to Mike. And, and the, the, the mum said, what do you think, Mike? Do you think he'll be disturbed by the trains going on in the morning? And Mike said, no. And the family, the mum looked, looked reassured, and they sort of turned back to go. And the Mike said, because he's dead, he can't hear anything. And it was just one of those car crash moments. But he was dead right, wasn't he? It's one of those moments where, well, what he has said is absolutely true. And yet everyone froze. Uh, Micah is that kind of prophet. He is a prophet who has burst into the people of God, Israel, where he ministers, and has begun, well, he's begun a funeral speech. Verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness. That word woe is the first word that will be announced at a funeral. If you've been to funerals, uh, typically, uh, the minister will walk into church in front of the coffin and will often be, be reading scriptures, comforting scriptures. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. The Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That there are words that often begin in funerals. Back in Israel, that, that woe word was that a funeral is happening. And yet no one's died. Not yet, at least. But, but Micah is telling them that, that death and judgment is on the way. He's not a cheery prophet. One of the reasons we try and preach through books of the Bible is that it confronts us with, with all that God has to say to us, the uncomfortable as well as the comfortable. Uh, last week, Micah's theme in chapter 1 was just the scale of judgment. If you look at uh, chapter 1 uh, and verses 3 and 4, Micah says, Behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open. We saw the, the sheer size of God. Micah's name actually means who is like Yahweh. And the, the theme of the book is, well, is exactly that. It's teaching us what God is like. Because it is his own people who've forgotten. Micah's not preaching to people who've never heard of God, who've never been to the temple. He is preaching to people who know and yet have forgotten, distorted the knowledge of the true God. 
So if in chapter one, the, the theme is just the sheer scale of God coming in judgment. In chapter two, Micah zooms in and, and, and wants us to know that, that God is perfectly just in all he does. He's perfectly just in all he does. Uh, to see that, we, we need to understand a little bit about what's going on. It really isn't a straightforward chapter. As I read it, you, you may have found it somewhat confusing. I hope we'll be able to tease out some of the problems as we go through, but I'm afraid some may remain. But if you look down at the first couple of verses, we get a description of, of what God's people have been doing. Okay, what the people of Israel have been doing. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Uh, th- these are uh, presumably men who are lying in bed, planning. Well, what are they planning? They're planning how to steal and in particular, how to increase their property empire. Verse 2, they covet fields and seize them, houses, and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and in his inheritance. The key word there is covet, verse 2. These people are lying in bed at night just thinking about well, what they want. The field they saw, they want to get hold of. The house that belongs to their neighbour, but they want to take. These aren't really thugs and bullies. These are, these are more like lawyers, if you like. Okay, they're barristers, not bullies or bandits. They're, they're, they're devising clever ways to exploit those less fortunate themselves. If you're down at verses 8 and 9, we get a little taste of who's been victimised. Lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. They're, they're fighting one another. And then, then Micah addresses the, the baddies, if you like. You strip the rich robe from those by trustingly with no thought of war. Just walking past, and people didn't have a lot of property in those days, a lot of possessions. One man walks past another house, and the coat is taken. Verse 9, the women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. Uh, presumably widows uh, are, are kicked off their land, which in those days would have been disastrous. Their young children, you take away my splendour. Forever. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? You take away my splendour. Forever. Uh, one of the things we need to understand about the world that Michael lived in is it's not, uh, it's not like our world where we decide, oh, I'd quite like to live in Roundhay or Chapel Allison and we, we look on right move and we find a property and we, we go and buy it. No, your property was given to your family by God. The book of Joshua, uh, which occurred many hundreds of years before Micah, uh, tells of, of the Israelites going into their land and God allots each tribe, Benjamin, Judah, uh, Reuben, Gad, each tribe gets their area, their county if you like, and then within it each clan gets their plot and then each family. So, so your, your property, your farm, your field was a gift, an allotment from the Lord. And so probably the sense of verse 9 is that by kicking the children off uh, the land, kicking them out of their homes. They're taking away what God has given. They're taking away the children's ability to enjoy the goodness of God. Now, these are the loan sharks, the exploiters. And they're exploiting, again, not the kind of enemies out there, but exploiting their own people, their brothers and sisters. And in one sense, we think, well, I'm just nothing like that. And that is true to a degree, isn't it? There is a danger where you read the Bible and every time someone is, does something wrong, you think, well, that's me too. Well, it's unlikely, I hope, <laughs> that many of us are you know, throwing widows out of their houses and children onto the streets. But that little word covet in verse 2, well, that pins us. To covet something, children, is to, to desire something, to want something that God hasn't given you. Uh, to, be, to be full of sort of anger 
but because someone else has something that you want. Sin always begins in the heart. And it, as, one, as one minister some three, four hundred years ago called John Owen said, sin always aims at the utmost. Every unclean thought would be adultery if it could. That the reason we covet or lust is because we actually want the thing. We don't enjoy the coveting. We don't enjoy the lusting. We want the object. And the only thing that stops us very often are the circumstances. We'd be embarrassed to be caught. But as Jesus focuses on the heart, as he preached his great sermon on the mount, he says that to lust is to commit adultery, to hate is to commit murder, uh, to covet is to steal. How many people would you have slept with if you could have got away with it? How many husbands would have been pinched? How much money stolen? How many careers ruined? Uh, we are people who covet. And we need to be careful when we see these people who covet and then have the power to go and put it into action, that we don't just dismiss them as bad guys and don't stop and look at our own hearts. But I'm not sure Micah's main point here is uh, to, to remind us all not to evict the poor. You know, don't be a loan shark. Don't. His concern, rather, is with God. This whole book, remember, Micah, how is like Yahweh. It's about the character of God. And Michael wants us to know in chapter 2 that the punishment fits the crime. Okay, the punishment these people are going to receive fits the crime. That is always the way God works because he's just. When he comes to punish, it's not that he's lost his temper. Parents, you might know this. Children, I'm sure your parents never do this, but you know, my children will tell you it does happen. There are times when you've just been so wound up by the children that even though what they've done is just something very small, you just pop and your response is disproportionate. Maybe that's just me. but that, that, That's not like God's. God is always proportionate. Uh, the punishment fits the crime. We see that if you look down at verse 3. What is God going to do? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster. There's a little one there in a footnote saying that that word disaster is the same word uh, as the word evil. And the significance of that is that God, what God says he's going to do is exactly what the people are doing in verse 1. Do you see 2 verse 1? Woe to those who devise wickedness. And work evil on their beds. Therefore, verse 3, I am devising, it's the same word, evil, wickedness. What you have done to others, I'm going to do to you, says God. And what is that? Well, verse 4 and 5, uh, God is going to take their land away. Uh, they're going to sing this sort of sarcastic song, we're utterly ruined. Because he's removed from me the portion of my people to the apostate, he allots our fields. Very specifically in history, at one point, the Assyrian army came in and took away all the, the farms and homes of the Israelites. But, but the point is, what they're doing to, to others, God comes and does to them. The punishment fits the crime. That is a biblical principle. You see it often. You see it in some of the stories of Scripture. My children, do you remember the story of David and Bathsheba? David, the great king of Israel, and he sees Bathsheba, who's another man's wife, married to Uriah. And although Uriah is away fighting for, for his country and for his king, David steals Bathsheba, steals another man's wife, and they sleep together. He breaks up, David breaks up that family. What is the punishment that comes on him? Well, David's own family is broken up. His own son steals a woman he shouldn't steal. And David's family is torn apart. There's a story of the book of Esther. 
Remember the story of Esther? Esther, this beautiful uh, Jewish girl who's brought uh, to be uh, the queen to the great emperor of the day, the foreign emperor. Uh, and her uncle uh, is in the king's service. Uh, but he won't bow to the prime minister, this guy called Harman. And so Harman creates this plot to catch Mordecai, Esther's uncle. Uh, he, he wants to humiliate him. Uh, he wants to get Mordecai killed, ultimately. So, so, so Harman, the prime minister, builds a big gallows to hang Mordecai on. And then he sets his trap. But it backfires. And by the end of the book of Esther, it is Harman who is hung on the gallows that he has constructed. It's the same lesson being taught in story form. The punishment fits the crime. God was always just in how he treats us. And we see that justice worked out in our own day and in the era of the gospel in a couple of ways. We see the punishment fits the crime. Ultimately, we say to God, or if we say to God, I want nothing to do with you, that is what we will get. In a book called Two Thessalonians, Paul writes to the, uh, the Christians there and talks about those who rejected the Lord, turned away from the Lord. And he says this, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. One day when Christ returns, when God's King, God's Son returns, uh, all those who've not come to him for mercy will be shut away from the goodness of God. Uh, as one of uh, author C.S. Lewis has said that there's two types of people ultimately. There are those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. If we say in this life we want nothing to, to do with God, well that is what we will get when he comes in judgment. Finally, away from the presence of the Lord. That doesn't mean, by the way, that, that God is uh, somehow not in control of, of hell. But rather we're away from the presence in terms of his goodness. If we've been idolaters all our life, saying, look, I, I want to go somewhere else for my pleasure, God. He says, fine, I will remove all good things from you. In fact, one of the ways, uh, sobering ways, that uh, we think we can think about the judgment to come that, that Jesus warns about so many times is by thinking of the, 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 the sins that we've committed and seeing how they're going to be brought back on our own heads if we don't come for mercy. I think through the commandments, idolaters who go for pleasure to somewhere other than God will have all pleasure removed. Third commandment, we dishonour God's name, will ultimately will be put to shame in eternal judgment. Fourth commandment, that the Sabbath commandment, that resting, ultimately resting in Christ from our good work, from our striving for self-salvation. We refuse to rest. Hell is described as a place where they have no rest day or night. We disobey our parents and then God comes in judgment and we feel the full force of his heavenly discipline. Uh, we murder and hate and we're subjected to eternal death. We commit adultery, uh, whether in our hearts or physically. And so in eternal judgment, we're left alone. No partner, no one to rely on, no one to comfort us. We steal and eternal judgment in hell. Everything is taken from us. We bear false witness, we lie with our lips, we tell untruths with our lips. And then in hell, the truth about us is exposed and sears our consciences. We covet in this life. And then if we don't find mercy, we spend eternity never being satisfied, never having enough longing, but not one desire met. 
Michael is an uncomfortable prophet, but so is Jesus. No one spoke more about judgment, about hell, than Jesus. It's not the kind of thing that it's not the kind of thing that any Christian or any minister or any preacher gets out of bed in the morning and, and, and delights to speak about, but we need to be honest with God's word. The punishment will fit the crime unless we come for mercy. And it will be in proportion to the crime. I remember the parable Jesus tells about the servants who, um, whose master goes away and then he returns. And the servants have been doing different things. And how they've acted while the master is away, well, they both disobeyed him. But Jesus finishes the parable like this. This is Luke 12, if you want the reference. The servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The punishment's in proportion to the crimes it is. The, the, the one who, who knew lots about God but still disobeyed gets a severe beating. The one who knew less gets a lighter beating. In that sense that hell is not the same experience for everybody. It's awful for everybody, but it's not the same. They're, because God is just, the punishment is proportionate. These are uncomfortable truths, but they are God's truths. Two things by way of application. The first is that this passage in Micah is good news for those who've been exploited and, and who've had no earthly justice. Some of you may well have suffered horrendously at, at the hands of other men uh, or women on this earth. People may not know about it. There may have been no justice, but there will be. God here is coming to those who've been exploited and promising them justice. That churchyard I talked about back in, uh, back in Derbyshire it had one very strange gravestone. That was, it was a couple of hundred years old, and in the top left-hand corner there was a hole in it, this really rough hole. Uh, and the story goes uh, that uh, the man buried there uh, had been having an affair, but his wife never knew about it, and she only discovered it after he died and was buried. So she went down to his grave with a shotgun and Shot the grave, blew a hole in it. She longed for justice but couldn't get it. But God will bring justice. And for those of you who've been exploited, suffered badly at the hands of those who have power over you, there is justice. God does care. He may be slow, but he never misses. And secondly, of course, this... this <laughs> This, this warns of the seriousness of sin, of our sin. But we tend to think, don't we? I don't, I don't know if you find this. When you, when you come to a passage in the New Testament about judgment or about hell, often our reaction is, that just seems, just seems unfair. It seems too much. It seems disproportionate. My little sin, and he can talk about lakes of fire, or Jesus can talk about people burning forever. And just for what I've done, just a little bit of not believing in God, seems a very small thing. But it's because we're reasoning the wrong way around. We look at our sin and think it's small and then think that God's justice and punishment is utterly unfair. But instead, we should look at the scale of the punishment and realise how bad our sin must be to deserve that. If you start to look at your own life and think, well, sin doesn't matter that much, 
uh, one thing these warning passages, judgment passages do is show us how serious, what a terrible, treasonous act any sin is. Ultimately, that's shown at the cross as well, isn't it? Sin costs the Son of God his life as he dies to save us. Now, that is how serious it is. God is perfectly just, Malachi is telling us. And it is sobering for the people of his day and for ours. And frankly, we don't want to hear about it. Now, that's really the, sec- the theme of the second half of this chapter. I don't, you may already be feeling uncomfortable. It's not what you wanted to hear on a, on a Sunday morning. And Micah's contemporaries certainly felt like that. In verse 6, we... We, we, get a, we get a kind of glimpse of the conversation, a back and forth between, Malachi, sorry, between Micah uh, and uh, those listening to him. Now, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and, and there aren't quotation marks in Hebrew. So the, the, the English translators have had to guess who's speaking where. And I think, well, they did have made good guesses as far as I can tell. I'm no Hebrew scholar. Uh, but verse 6 starts with, with, with Micah's listeners speaking back to him. Don't preach. They preach, says Malachi. I preach, and they say, stop preaching. We don't want to hear about this. So again, Micah's enemies start again. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not exist. God will not judge, they say. The the, the God you're describing, Micah, that is ridiculous. That is not true. God is not going to, in their case, drive us away from the land. Chapter 1 ended with with Micah warning that God will come in judgment and drive them off the land. Chapter 2, we've seen their houses will be taken away. That's not the God we believe in, Micah, they say. God is a God of mercy. Verse 7, has the Lord grown impatient? I think that's probably the enemy still speaking. Has the Lord run out of mercy suddenly? Do you not believe in a God of grace and forgiveness? Michael, what is all this judgment and punishment? And Michael says, well, God has always acted this way. I think of the book of Genesis, chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. They take the, the fruit and they're driven out into exile, away from God's presence. Chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel and Cain is driven away from God's presence, out into the wilderness. Chapter 6 through 9 of, of, of Genesis, the story of the flood, mankind rebels, and so God wipes out, comes in judgment and wipes out humanity and saves just a remnant. Chapter 11, humanity gathers themselves together and builds this tower of Babel, and then God comes and scatters, drives them away again. That's always what, what God has done, says Micah. And the enemy said, that's so Old Testament, Micah. That's so old-fashioned. That's such an unsophisticated reading of the texts. How can you, an intelligent man, think like that in our day and age? Come on, Micah, this is the 700s B.C., that stuff from Genesis is thousands of years ago. And it was. The gap between Micah and, say, Abraham or Noah is far bigger than the gap between us and Henry VIII. Henry VIII and, and, and you are practically contemporaries compared to Micah and Abraham. And others come along and say, look, the God, Micah, that I believe in would never do that. Uh, he's a God of mercy and love. Uh, will God really grow impatient with us? Are these his deeds? Uh, verse 7. And it's the same all the way through history. Micah, in that sense, is a very contemporary book. And newspapers, comedians will scoff at the idea of Jesus returning to judge. That's what the wackos think. Or oh, that's what people thought back in the olden days before we were sophisticated. But actually, it's the message of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation. It's a message shared across the Christian denominations. And the fact that it's chilling and sobering doesn't mean it is not true. And we will hear the same commands not to speak. 
we'll hear it from the world, but, but tragically here, it's the, it's, the church, it's the people of God who are telling Micah to shut up. Again, remember, Micah's not out in foreign nations. He is at home with God's people. And they are saying, stop it, Micah. Do not preach. In fact, it's worse than that. It's not just that they're saying, Micah, don't preach. They're saying, Micah, we have got better preachers than this. Look down with me at verse 11. Micah is speaking here, and he's speaking about others, other preachers. If a man should go about and utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. There are plenty of preachers, Micah is saying, going around. Plenty of prophets. The preaching word there is a word... Um, often used of prophets. Plenty of people claiming to be full of the Spirit. The word uh, wind, you may know, verse 11, the word wind is the same word in the Old and New Testament, actually, both languages, Hebrew and Greek, as the word for Spirit. These are people, Mike is making a kind of pun. These are people walking around saying, I'm full of the Spirit, and I'm telling you there's no problem. God won't judge. He doesn't care about sin. Have another pint. The next round's on God. They claim to be full of Spirit. Mike says they're full of wind. My wife, George, when she was at university, told me that about her, the chaplain at the college she was at, uh, who would be uh, walking around uh, on a Sunday morning after the kind of Saturday night, hung over, um, tr- trying to look like one of the lads, as it were. Oh, I'm just like you. Hey, Christians, we get drunk too. And there have always been those like that. And there have always been men, ministers in God's church, who deny that God will return. In judgment, a few years ago, one of the most prominent evangelical ministers across the world had a mega ministry, a guy called Rob Bell. I wrote a book called Love Wins. It was the front cover of Time magazine. It really had a, just a global impact. And he said this, it's been clearly communicated to many Christians that this belief in hell as eternal conscious tournament is a central truth of the Christian faith. And to reject it is to reject Jesus. This is misguided and toxic and subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Doesn't it sound nice? It's not true. It's full of wind. Massive church. Massive ministry. But just wind. Tragically, the place where you're most likely to be led astray, to have your picture of God distorted... It's church. Partly that's because most of the world are not talking about Jesus. Uh, Micah's name, who is like the Lord? The question that begins and ends the book, as we looked at last week, chapter 7, ends the same question, who is like the Lord? Is in our day, who is like, what well, means who is like Yahweh? Who is like Jesus? Who is like, what is Jesus actually like? In order to know, we must let him speak. And not project onto him our 21st century values. So you can imagine uh, Micah turning up to a mission planning event. Perhaps your, you know, your university Christian union is running a, a mission. They've got a mission this time, haven't they? Or your office has a Christian union. You're running a mission. Whatever it might be. Beach mission in the summer or summer camp. And it's a, a planning committee. Uh, and the first person says, well... God loves, God loves the, the planet and cares about it. God loves the planet and cares about it and how we treat it. So why don't we have a, a, a talk about that? That will really resonate with people because that, that's big at the moment. Obviously, care for the environment, right? Care for the environment. So let's talk about how God loves the environment. Yeah, yeah, good idea. Good idea. And someone else says, well, what about, we could do something about how God is really against um, 
human trafficking and, and slavery. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. That'll engage well. That people, people agree with that. That'll play them on side. And another, another one says, well, God is a creative God, isn't he? So we can do something creative. Why don't we have a sort of arts evening? We, all do, we sort of paint and we... Uh, that'll show God's desire for, and, and, and love for the arts. And uh, great, great, great. And then Mike says, yeah, brilliant. All those things, true, great, love it. And I could do one about one day God's going to return in blazing fire and judgment. And anyone who hasn't turned to him for mercy will be cast into the pits of hell. And it's just a very awkward silence. I'm not sure, Mike, that's really what we need here in our day and age. I wonder if you just need to be a bit more sophisticated than that. Think about the people you're trying to reach and, and find connection. That's... Honestly, how would you feel? How have I felt this morning? How do I feel preaching it? Uh, we might know in our heads that we're meant to not agree with the preachers who stand up and say, do not preach Micah. But actually, we do want to shrink back, don't we? There's something natural about that. Jesus weeps as he thinks about the judgment coming to Jerusalem. Oh, we must never think that, that Christians are meant to be triumphalistic about this. Micah, in verse 8 of chapter 1, said he's going to lament and wail, screech like the jackals and the ostriches. But the fact that we find it chilling doesn't mean that we don't both believe it, but also speak of it. Now, it's not the only way to evangelise, obviously. It's not that every evangelistic event is meant to be a kind of Micah 2 event. But some should be. Because without judgment, the cross makes no sense. Without judgment, no one will flee for mercy. If you have a doctor, every time you go to your GP, you walk through the door, sit down, and before he even looks at you, he says, oh, everything's fine. He's not a good GP, is he? You need the truth. And so what, is Mike, uh, what does Micah tell us Yahweh is like? God is like he is strong and just and will judge. But amazingly, verse 12, suddenly the whole passage turns a corner. So much so that some people have thought these, these verses just don't even make sense here. But, but they do because God is a God of surprising grace. Suddenly, at the end of all this judgment, suddenly God announces, I will assemble all of you, Jacob. I'll gather the remnant of Israel together. Like sheep, I'm going to get you. I'm going to rescue you. So, so Michael's been hammering away and you can imagine the people creeping out and trying to find a better church where they just say nicer things and it's all a bit more comfortable and running away. And suddenly Micah announces in God's name, I am going to rescue you. Gather the sheep back together. How? This figure, this strange figure in verse 13 is going to come. ESV, the Bible translation we've got on our, on our laps today, it's a slightly sort of clunky translation. It's pretty accurate, but it's sort of clunky. He who opens the breach goes up before them. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of like the, the smasher is going to go before them, the, the breaker. Okay, it's, 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 children, it's a bit like the... Imagine a kind of incredible Hulk figure. Someone who just smashes things really strong. He's going to go up before these lost sheep and rescue. They'll break out because he has broken through the gate. What's going on? What's going on is all that Mike has, has spoken about God, his strength from chapter 1 and his justice in chapter 2, are now coming not to condemn but to rescue. God is not a God who simply turns up and says, you're all going to hell goodbye. He turns up and warns us that if we keep running from him, that is where we will go. But he does so in order that he might rescue us, show us his love. And his strength and justice suddenly become good news. As the story goes on, 
That's where the Bible goes on. Uh, God sends Jesus, the truly strong man. His own son becomes one of us. Jesus is described as a strong man in Matthew's Gospel. And he comes and he defeats everything that stands against us. Everything that should conquer us, Jesus breaks. So, so the chains of sin, Jesus breaks them. Uh, the devil, Jesus conquers the devil. Death itself, Jesus is put in a tomb. He dies and is put in a tomb. But the tomb cannot contain him. He is too strong even for death. And so he rises again. His strength is suddenly good news for us. And so is his justice. As we finish, just come right to the other end of the Bible. Look at 1 John. It's a little letter. It's about as hard to find as Micah, frankly. Uh, page 1021. One thousand twenty-one, little letter, one John, and chapter one, verse eight. One John, one verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say, "Look, Michael, that's not us. I'm, I'm a good guy. I'll be fine." No, no, the truth is not in you. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants to rescue, wants to forgive, wants to give us eternal life. He doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, as he says elsewhere. And it's God's justice that is good news for us. Why? Because as Jesus dies on the cross, God's own son dies on the cross, he is being punished for all our sin. God's wrath, this this enormous anger that, that, that Micah has talked about, this just fair anger is poured on Jesus. Jesus on the cross goes through hell for his people. And that is great news because God is just and will not punish sin twice. If you turn to Jesus and ask for mercy, ask God for mercy, then he cannot punish you because your sin will be punished in Jesus. So when you read Old Testament books like Micah or frankly the Gospels and Jesus lays out the severity of judgment... Uh, What are you to do? Uh, You're not, if you're a Christian, to cower and run away from God. Uh, Rather, you're certainly to weep over your sin. Certainly to pray that more and more people would find this mercy. But you're also to see that just the size of the love of God. God was willing to come under his own wrath in order to save you. All the terrors that await us if you reject God, he voluntarily took on himself on the cross, in the person of Jesus. That is how much he loves you. How whatever horrendous thing you read about, he has been through for your sake because he loves you. And therefore you are utterly secure because he is just and he will not punish sin twice. You turn up at the gates of heaven. This is not going to happen, by the way. But you turn up at the gates of heaven and Satan says, ah, oh, she got drunk and kissed someone at the office party who wasn't her husband. And Jesus says, yep, I died for that. It's been punished. And Satan says, he, he exploited the poor, was hard-hearted, coveted. Jesus says, yep, I died for that. It's been punished. And therefore it will be unfair not to let you in to this world of eternal life. God is just and he is merciful. And at the cross, those two attributes meet and we have full and final salvation.